Hey everyone, welcome to What Are You Watching? I'm Alex Wither, and I'm joined as always by my best friend Nick Dostal. How you doing there, Rock? Ex- <laughs> excited to be here. <laughs> Damn right. Last episode, we did a deep, deep dive into the career of our favorite filmmaker, John Cassavetes, and we spent a lot of time talking about the movies Cassavetes made as a director, and during that time, he would often take acting roles in quote-unquote lesser films to help fund the films he directed, especially later in his career. The great exception to this is the 1976 hidden gem Mikey and Nikki, directed by the great Elaine May. On our Cassavetes podcast, I said that Mikey and Nikki was the best Cassavetes film Cassavetes didn't make. And I mean that as the highest of compliments. It's raw, hilarious, wonderfully flawed. It's a great movie that was recently given new life thanks to the Criterion Collection, who released a remarkable Blu-ray of the film late last year. This is a movie I found because of you, actually, and I love it for that reason. I hadn't heard much about it at all. And then you watched it on Criterion and you were like, dude, Mikey and Nikki, it's it. Watch it next. And I did. And I fell in love with it. And I actually sent you a video of when I was watching it for the first time because I was laughing so damn hard at one scene, which we'll get to. But I love Mikey and Nikki. I love that we're talking about it. It doesn't get a lot of ink or airtime. Yeah, I just put this on because this was one of those nights where I did no idea what I was watching on Criterion. I was like, I'm just going to put on Criterion and I'm just going to land on the first thing that gives me something. And we had not even begun our Cassavetes research. So I was still unfamiliar with him. So I just put it on and I was just like, what am I watching here? <laughs> this movie is a mess of brilliance. I couldn't really shake what I was seeing. Like every scene just kept taking me for all these rides. And then come to find that a lot of people like that movie is pretty sung pretty well on Criterion. There's a lot of different film critics, a lot of different actors that like to talk about that movie. And I did not realize that this was really a movie for creatives. A lot of people get inspiration from this movie, and it's definitely um, getting praise on Criterion, and rightfully so. Absolutely. And it is one of those sneaky, hidden gems that influenced so many people, but a lot of people couldn't get their hands on it. And yeah, I mean, we could sing the praises of Criterion all day. They have saved so many films. This is Honestly, one of the best examples I've ever come across because they really did pluck it out of obscurity and did a great transfer. I mean, I own this Blu-ray and it is it's just great. And the film stock is so grainy and it really brings out all of that. And the sound is is off for reasons we'll talk about in some. (laughs) Yeah. In some areas, they had a lot of trouble with it. And the sound, the audio is just crisper on this Blu-ray. You could kind of hear the the flaws a little more, but. That's all part of the package. That's it's it. all part of the ride. It's all part of the game. Mm-hmm. Like Cassavetti's films, Mikey and Nikki is not a movie concerned with plot, so I'll keep this brief. Nikki, the paranoid perpetual fuck up played perfectly by Cassavetti's, is hiding out after stealing a little money from the Philly mob, and he calls on his dutiful friend Mikey, played with great comic fire by Peter Falk, to help him out. The two spend about Ah, 12 hours running through the city, escaping Nikki's paranoias and fears, arguing constantly. And what makes this movie great is not the mob aspect of the plot. That's just a propeller to keep things moving. 
What makes this movie memorable is the way it captures male friendship with such raw honesty. Cassavetes and Falk are remarkable in this. And the way May captures their friendship, it's that's why you watch. Yeah, that, I think that's really what caught me with it, too, is was watching two friends, the ups and downs, the comedy, the drama, the hatred that they have for each other, but then the love. The, I mean, there is not one scene in this movie where that is not always up and down, flipped there's nothing's ever the same thing they always end up finding either if the scene starts in a place in a place of compassion it'll end in a place of conflict or if it starts in conflict it might end in compassion and that's the roller coaster of mikey and nikki because that's how fiery they are that's there's a lifetime of friendship and frustrations and resentments and joy and love built into this relationship and you feel all of it with every passing exchange yeah but we've already kind of talked about one of the reasons why this movie is so legendary and why it was so hard to see and that's because mikey and nikki had one of the most insane productions and post-productions that i've heard of and i want to kind of go over it a little bit because it'll it'll color in a little context for everything else we're going to talk about may falk and cassavetti's new They were going to capture much of the film through extensive improvisation. And this led to May shooting 1.4 million feet of film for this movie. Now, let's put that into context. When movies used to be projected on film in the theater, right, the final length of your average two-hour movie was 11,000 feet. Now, of course, you're going to shoot more than 11,000 feet. You have multiple takes of the same shot. You have scenes that end up on the cutting room floor. But 1.5 million feet of film for a movie that is 106 minutes long is unheard of. That's nearly three times as much film as was shot for Gone with the Wind. And that's about as much film as Coppola shot for Apocalypse Now. I was going to ask if, the, if, if Apocalypse Now was in that conversation. Yeah, but that has, you know, that production lasted, what, a, a year plus? Yeah. It went through monsoons. I mean, the lead had a heart attack or the lead gets fired. <laughs> Martin Sheen has a heart attack. Prince Ford Coppola almost dies. So that, uh, as much film was shot for that movie, is what May did for Mikey and Nicky. And when you shoot that much footage, you obviously risk drowning yourself in the editing room. And that's kind of what happened here. This movie was shot in 1973, but wasn't released until the very end of 1976. And during those three years of editing the movie, May encountered a lot of problems. Footage went missing, some of which she was hiding from the studio so that they would allow her to finish the movie. Yeah. The audio of some of the footage does not sync up right, as we mentioned. The budget goes from $1.8 million to $4.2 million. This is unheard of in 1970s cinema. Paramount takes the film away from May. It's finally released. And May doesn't direct for another decade. So complicated history for Mikey and Nikki. It's just incredible that it's done. Yeah. I can't imagine what it was like to work with film. I mean, we're so fortunate to be in a time where film now is pretty much used as a device for a certain look. It's not the standard way of doing things. We have really moved from film to digital. Digital is the accepted medium. And film now, which does look better. Like, it will always look better. Absolutely. In my opinion, it will. I just think that that's incredible that Elaine May shot that much and then drowning in it. You're right, man. I mean, I, I, uh, what do you do? Like, 
how do you handle that much just straight up material like matter physical <laughs> matter exactly because if i'm shooting that much digital footage i'm putting all of that on servers external hard drives and that's going to take me probably years to edit all that digitally now imagine having actual film that you have to like hang on yeah. clotheslines and like go through stitch by stitch where's that one scene this is improv that means it's changing constantly where's that thing where they went off on that jag where's this where's this the fact that it did get made and released at a tight 106 minutes is it, it's really astounding i mean it, it is it's one of the most incredible productions and post-productions i've ever heard in hollywood genuinely and i love its flaws i think it's the flaws are what make this movie i remember the first thing i noticed well besides the sound being off which to me is one of those things where if I see it off, generally it bothers me, generally it bothers anyone. But if I'm already in a certain mood that the movie's given me, the sound being off doesn't actually take me out of it. It actually puts me in it more because we're in a mess. I remember there was also one scene where they're on the streets and you can clearly see under Peter Falk's tie the mic. And it's like all of these film mistakes that just are elementary and very, very amateurish in so many ways, to me, just actually make this story more real. Yeah, it's just like Cassavetti's own films. Those are not polished, well-honed, structured things. These are not David Fincher movies where every single shot, or Stanley Kubrick, where every single shot is immaculately set up. And it's very difficult to find like a continuity flaw in a Fincher movie. They're there, but you have to look. Yeah. Scorsese is kind of in the Cassavetti's May camp where just get the performance. Riff, if the coffee cup is not in the same place, who gives a shit? If you are paying attention to a coffee cup, then the movie doesn't have you. And that's, you know, that's that's OK. But if the movie has you, you don't give a shit about a coffee cup or being able to briefly see a lav mic and Go back and watch the Blu-ray version of Godfather Part 2. A lot of the audio of that movie does not match up, particularly the old stuff with De Niro. There's a lot of, like, really far shots away. It just happens. It, they didn't have the resources we had. And they didn't have, like, months and months of ADR, you know, where they're standing in front of mics in, in front of a large screen. And again, if the movie is good enough, these things don't really matter. And let's be clear. It's not like all the audio is often Mikey and Nicky. There, there are just parts when... You know, little things don't really add up, but it doesn't really matter. And I think it's a really good lesson for filmmakers, young filmmakers, yeah, to realize that it's not about what's perfect. If you're telling a certain type of story, I think you have freedom to know what needs to be perfect in it and what doesn't. Yeah, if you're making a David Fincher movie, and David Fincher is of that type of style, then that stuff is going to matter, and that does become important, because if that is off... It is going to take away. But if you are making something that is just gritty, it's dirty, it's not clean, it's all about raw emotion, then fuck it. Yeah. You got to let it go and let the piece of art that you're making be what it wants to be. 
there's a thing that I heard about. I think this correlates to filmmaking as far as acting goes, too, is that no one wants to see a perfect actor. Perfect actor is boring. We want to see the flaws. We want to see the cracks. I think that applies in filmmaking as well. If something, because all of a sudden, if something is off in that way, maybe something's kind of off with these characters. And it's all of a sudden enhancing more. Quote, unquote, perfect acting performances often win Oscars because of their flawless approach and there isn't, you know, anything wrong with them. They're perfectly presented. But those are far from real life oftentimes. Mm -hmm. That isn't how people actually talk. And that's okay. That's the name of the game with movies. But there is another avenue that you can go down with your movie watching. That's all. In which you explore kind of unpolished, gritty, raw stuff. And it does not have to be, they don't have to be flaws that hurt the movie. They can be flaws that you embrace. And it's it's just it's one of the main things I love about Mikey and Nikki. And we can't really continue this conversation without going into Elaine May, because Elaine May is, for my money, one of the most influential entertainers of the last 60 years. Scrolling through her Wikipedia page takes like an hour because she's done so much real quick. Entertainment wise, she gets her start as a stand up comedian performing alongside Mike Nichols as the famed comedy duo Nichols and May. So, yeah, the director of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf and Closer started as one half of an improvisational comedy duo. And I love that. <laughs> Nichols and May stopped their act at the height of their popularity, but they stay good friends. So, already at this point in her early career, Elaine May has completely pioneered the use of improvisational comedy. And that would be enough to fill any legacy, but she's far from done. She becomes a playwright, a screenwriter, an actress, a director. She writes Heaven Can Wait for Warren Beatty, The Birdcage in Primary Colors for Mike Nichols. She has uncredited writing parts on Reds, Tootsie, Dangerous Minds. That's awesome. Right? Why not? She appears as an actress in many things, such as The Graduate, California Suite, and Small Time Crooks. She's won an Emmy, a Tony. She's been nominated for Oscars. She received the fucking Medal of Arts from Obama in 2013. <laughs> Elaine May. Huge, huge deal. But for our purposes, she also directed four feature films. A New Leaf in 1971, which she co-wrote and starred in. The Heartbreak Kid in 1972, which was remade by the Fairley Brothers in 2007. Mikey and Nikki in 1976. And Ishtar in 1987, starring Warren Beatty and Dustin Hoffman. And that movie is widely considered one of the most contentious productions in Hollywood history. It's too much to get into here, but obviously there is no end to this woman's talent. But it's true. Mikey and Nikki was a difficult production and she didn't direct another movie for 11 years. And the Ishtar experience was so hard on her that she hasn't directed a scripted feature film since. And that's a shame because going off Mikey and Nikki alone, this woman has a film voice that deserves to be explored more frequently. I love Elaine May. Mike Nichols, Steve Martin, Bill Murray, David Letterman, and especially Woody Allen have all cited her as inspirations. And how many people have been influenced by those people, right? Cannot overstate her importance enough. And it's great that she directed this film. I mentioned this on the Cassavetes podcast, but this is one of the best movies I've ever seen about vulnerable male friendship. And I love that it is captured by a woman. It's so precise. And she attacks this material too. There, there, she is after something. Like this is a film where regardless of Cassavetes and Falk's performances in the movie, which is the driving force, but this is a filmmaker's movie. You can feel every step of the way that the filmmaker 
is after something. And it's, you know, that Cassavetti has always used that word attack. Like you have to attack, Mm -hmm. you know, the people that challenge your art. You have to attack your art with vigor. And I think she must have been so curious because who seeks out to work with someone like Cassavetti's? If you're trying to get Cassavetti's Cassavetti's, not just, oh, I'm going to hire him as an actor. Right. You, you, you want to go to Cassavetti's land. That, to me, especially at that time, because he was not commercially successful, there was no real appeal other than if he spoke to you as an artist. And so to come off of the movies that she came off of and to choose to dive into this masculine, toxic masculine story with these two guys, she's got some balls. That's a really good point because Cassavetes is, he was never shy about the fact that he was not easy to work with. We talked about this a lot in the last episode, but even as an actor, he, you know, he had a lot of trouble acting in other people's movies because his style was so fluid and you could just move. But for instance, him and Roman Polanski did not get on well on Rosemary's Baby for this reason. But if Elaine May, who's a really respected figure, is kind of tapping you to, hey, come on, join this party. And I don't want a lazy paycheck, Cassavetes. I want sweaty, unshaven, constantly smoking, drinking, screaming, laughing Cassavetes. So bring it. I mean, he shows up. He's here for her. So is Falk. And I actually was going to roll right into Cassavetes next because when Mikey and Nikki was released, Cassavetes had just directed A Woman Under the Influence and The Killing of a Chinese Bookie. And he had just acted in Capone and Two Minute Warning, which are kind of two of the roles we're talking about. They're not two of his best but he was paid well, especially for two-minute warning. So there. Another thing we talked about before is that of the performances that Cassavetes himself did not direct, his performance in Mikey and Nicky has to be his best. Yeah. His desperation is on another level here. You really believe every one of his infuriating bits of mania and paranoia. And he and Falk are, I mean, of course, they're just incredible together. And again, you know me, I love context. These guys first worked together just three years before. Husbands was made in 1970, and they filmed Mikey and Nikki in 1973. And the fact that these two could build up such believable chemistry in that time is, it's, it's great. I believe that these guys love each other, hate each other, and have known each other their whole lives. Their history is palpable. Like, you can, you totally believe it. And one of my favorite scenes in the whole entire movie is uh, in the cemetery scene where they're talking about what they remember from childhood. They give little crumbs that they were there for certain things. And yeah, sure, it's exposition, but it doesn't feel like it at all. It feels like two people that are of the age that they're at talking about when they were kids. And I think that's, you know, because of what went into husbands, the way that they work together, how they got to know each other, that's, you know, that doesn't leave you. And that friendship that was there, I think that's just, it's a, it's, a fortunate advantage to working with the two of them. But that doesn't mean that they didn't have to do that same type of work for this, too. Right, exactly. And to touch on Falk, because I would honestly say that Falk has the harder role here. He has to keep everything moving and on the level. And it's so classic when his frustrations get the better of him. Like the scene I referenced before, when he goes to that diner to order the cream for John Cassavetes, It's one of the funniest movie scenes I've just ever seen because they're doing this bit like he's trying to trying to help Cassavetti's ulcer and he wants cream for it. The guy who works at the diner is not getting it and Falk just loses it, jumps over the counter. And you can tell that poor guy playing the waiter had no idea this was going to happen. He looks like terrified, but also like he's about to laugh. 
And it really throws you right into where Peter Falk as Mikey would just where his head is at. I rewound this scene like three times, sent a video of it to you of me laughing. Ah, it's great. But then, wow, where Mikey and Nikki goes is something that's really unexpected. I mean, this movie is insane. And toward the end, it gives itself this rest and lets Falk ease out this perfectly unexpected monologue about their friendship, what Nikki means to him. And the decision he reaches at the end of that monologue is kind of what the whole movie's about. And it's really palpable and it's really powerful because he makes a very conscious effort to not do something. You know, again, outside of Cassavetti's work that he directed, I would say this is Falk's finest hour. And I'm a fan. I love Peter Falk. But yeah, a really sneakily powerful performance here, especially at the end. It's violent comedy. I think this movie, it's always kind of going between those two things. And the diner scene's perfect example of that because it is funny, but it's also fucking serious. Yeah. Like he is jumping over the counter, he's breaking shit, and he is genuinely furious. And there's even, there's a great extra in the back who, again, to the speaking to the mess of the movie, um, she's just, she's like, looking at the camera straight on into yeah. the camera <laughs> like almost like are we supposed to be reacting to like you can see it but it actually works in the scene Cassavetti's just going off the wall and Falk is just trying to contain it but he's got his own rage and his own masculine tendencies that he can't really grasp and you know he's just constantly being torn between betrayal and loyalty yeah it's loyalty Versus betrayal, and you never know which way the other person is going to go. And how much of that goodwill that is in you from childhood, from friendship, from helping you through hard times, how long does that goodwill last? It has to exhaust itself at some point, right? And that's kind of what Falk is battling with throughout this. Like, yeah, I love this guy. Been through a lot together, but Jesus, like, I have a life. I have a wife. Can just keep bailing this guy out all the damn time. Yeah. That's got to be such a horrendous feeling because, you know, the start of the movie is Cassavetti is calling the one person because he's in trouble. And, you know, you get the sense immediately that this is not the first time and fall comes running. No questions asked. And you can feel that friendship. You can feel that this is this history of doing this. And I love throughout the rest of the movie where Cassavetes is like, I'm, we're doing this now, we're doing this. And then he keeps changing his mind. And Falk's like, first, so you want to go to a movie. Now you want to go see your mother. Now you want, what do you want to do? Like, what do you want to do? I'm with you, but what the fuck do you want to do? And it's so frustrating. But then how he finds himself enamored with his friend. One of the things that I want to bring up is that the way that, this is a great writing tool as well, is um, especially with a movie that doesn't have any plot, but props. The way that props are used in this movie forward the character development, the antacid pills for the ulcer. Yeah. It's a simple thing of like, I just need you to take this pill. But watching Cassavetti is in sheer terror, all of this shit. And he's like, just take it, just take it. And the classic, the coats swap. Oh, my God. In the scene in the movie... They're leaving the hotel, but Cassavetes is freaked out that there's going to be people on the other side of the door. And so he convinces Falk to switch jackets with him. 
which is such a little kid thing to do. That's how I this I interpreted it would be like, oh yeah, like hey hey, switch jackets with me. I, I, I if you're going out there, like I don't want them to think it's me. So give me your jacket and we'll switch. We'll do the switcheroo. Watching two grown men switch jackets and. This doesn't do anything to forward story. This doesn't do any of that. But this tells you so much. And it's such a thing that you can grab onto and relate in your own way. And um, same thing with the cream. The the cream wouldn't happen unless Falk needed to get cream for his friend's ulcer. And um, the watch. I have to bring up the watch. Because I think the watch is one of the most pivotal points in the movie. And again, you know, we are kind of jumping around this movie which i don't think really matters because the movie jumps around so much yeah it's fine but cassavetes throws peter falk's watch across the street out of a a boyish frustration with his friend and breaks his watch yes and just to interrupt quickly a boyish prank for his friend that turns out being kind of the game changer of the movie it is and it is not a boyish prank to peter falk yeah it is not a joke to peter falk he is that was the th- the straw that broke the camel's back, mm-hmm. and it and it's a symbol for it's not just the watch. This is everything, and I love the line where he says, "You're a piece of nothing," which is so much worse than saying a piece of shit. It's it, a piece of nothing, man. It just really hits in a different way. But all of that stemmed from a simple act, a mean and childish, immature act, but just an act. I'm going to take your watch and throw it across the street because I'm mad at you. This is the thing with writing that you can do is like you don't need to come up with interesting ideas sometimes. Sometimes they can be so much simpler. If you don't know what to do with your characters, have them just do something like that and then see what happens and see what comes out of it. And it's so much more interesting. You can distill this all down to a watch and how it's funny to me that I take your watch from you and throw it. Ha ha, that's funny. And it's not funny to you, but I don't care because I still think it's funny. And the fact that it is of complete inconsequence to me that I just ruined your dead father's watch would be infuriating. And that's enough to get the wheels spinning in your mind of, hmm, maybe this guy isn't a good influence on me. Mm -hmm. Maybe I don't need to spend my entire adult life bailing him out and chasing him around. And these conclusions that the characters reach are not. They're not spelled out for us. They're very, very subtle. And it's something you kind of you absolutely have to infer for yourself because they're not, you know, you, you kind of have to see in like really like in Falk's shoulders, just how he changes his whole demeanor around. Kat. I mean, he's really hurt. He's really hurt by this. And he doesn't. He's like, dude, I get it. Like all the bullshitting. Fine. Like this watch meant something to me, man. This isn't like it's not it's not OK. And yes, there's a simplicity to that writing that I really adore and that I'm really taken with. And we have to switch gears a little bit because we haven't even mentioned our main man, Ned Beatty, as Kenny, <laughs> one of the great all-time inept hitman in movies. I love this guy. This is the type of contract killer who's more concerned with parking fees than he is with a clean hit. And he's always a few steps behind. And Beatty, he just plays it so perfectly. The way it, it's a it's a really good way to casually inject humor into the movie, which can be really serious at times. And Beatty was just on a, his great 70s run here. Deliverance, White Lightning, Nashville, All the President's Men. He's nominated for Network the same year that Mikey and Nicky comes out. So, Nick, best Ned Beatty performance. Bobby from Deliverance. Kenny from Mikey and Nicky. Rudy's dad from Rudy. 
<laughs> this is the most beautiful sight these eyes have ever seen. <laughs> Son's body like, all right, let's go, Dad. His fucking wife's there, too. It's yeah, I know the wife. <laughs> oh, I love Ned Beatty. Always love Ned Beatty. First role, Deliverance. Hell of a first role. Oof, I did not know that. That's his first role, huh? Oh, yeah. Wow. Go on IMDb all the way at the bottom, Deliverance. Damn. Well, I mean, I think that's probably for anyone who sees it, that's probably his most unforgettable role. I mean, you don't yeah. you don't forget something like that. No. But yeah, I mean, I love him in this because he's just the most inconvenienced hitman you'll ever meet. <laughs> like the guy, it, it's just, you know, when he's driving Peter Falk around, finally they're meeting, they're driving around trying to find Cassavetes. And, <laughs> and Ned Beatty is just talking about how he just took this job because that was going to be the easier one. <laughs> you know, it's like it's not even going to be much of a paycheck out of this. And he goes, what am I doing doing this? This is just and <laughs> it's just a, it's a certain type of reality that you don't see from a character that's a hitman. Yeah. You never see a hitman told in movies and any type of gangster type related genres where it's just this kind of really out of shape, overweight <laughs> guy who really just has no interest in doing this job tonight. <laughs> so speaking of influence, how much does this remind you of James Gandolfini from Killing Them Softly? Overweight, kind of out of it, hitman, doesn't really get the job done. I There are Mikey and Nikki influences just spread out throughout cinema because, yeah, we are so used to seeing tall, dark, emotionless hitman, dark clothing, it's got the silencer, Boom, gun, leaves, and then that's it. It's like, okay, clean kill, done. And to hear this guy just bitching about parking fees or valet fees or the fact that this job isn't going to be a lot of money, it's it's hysterical. And really quick, we have to give a little shout out to the head honcho in this movie, the boss of it all, the guy playing the mob boss, is played by none other than Sanford Meisner, who, for hardcore movie and acting nerds, is the man who created the Meisner approach to acting. And I love seeing him appear in this, like Lee Strasberg and Godfather Part Two. These guys did not act often, but they completely revolutionized the art form of acting. Well, there's a lot of interesting things about the acting world in this movie that I did not actually realize until um, I was watching one of the special features on the Criterion channel on this movie where... They talk about how so many different people who are acting or a part of this movie came from all the different areas of acting during that time. So Stella Adler, Lee Strasberg, and this is right around the time because so so Sanford Meisner was a part of the Strasberg um, school of acting and then really started to disagree with the effective memory techniques that some of the Strasberg stuff was introducing. So he broke out and did his own thing, um, which is much more impulse and behavior driven. But you have this parable of acting royalty in this movie, and it's almost like it's the mafia mm -hmm. because it's this disorganized chaos that everyone is doing because this is what they do. So in a way, you could sort of tie this ridiculous gangster scenario to a parallel to the acting world during that time. And everyone kind of felt differently and everyone was kind of doing their thing. But ultimately, the gangsters in this movie don't get anything done. 
in the same way that that ended up turning out where it's like, all right, people will take from different tools. That's at least how I approach it is that I've learned from all of these things and I take what works for me and then what doesn't. And if it doesn't, I leave it. I take what does. Damn right. Exactly. Oh, to be a fly on the wall to see Cassavetes and Meisner like going back and forth because we we told the story about how Cassavetes auditioned to get into the actor's studio for Lee Strasberg and got in and it was basically like, screw you guys. I'm doing my own thing. Sanford Meisner, it's like you see him in these brief roles or Strasberg and Godfather Part Two as Hyman Roth in the way that Strasberg's shirt is open, the way he's sitting in that chair. Meisner has that presence, too, where he's just there and he's got that amazing voice that has a history of life in it. And it's just so fun. If you're a hardcore movie nerd, it's so fun to see a legend like that pop up. So let's get into some of our favorite scenes. It's a tough call. I love getting the cream scene because Cassavetes is just so freaked out in the hotel and he sends Falk back. I mean, it took him forever to let Falk in the room and then he sends him back out for the cream. He gets his cream, then he comes back. It takes him forever to get back in the room. Then it takes him forever to switch the jackets. It's it's just, it's this insane bit that goes on for like a half hour. My favorite has to be the final monologue from Falk, just saying he knows what kind of man Nikki is, how he's been there in the past. And this isn't really a movie that I would say watching it for, you know, 102 minutes. I wouldn't really say that it's a very like emotionally affecting movie. I don't really think it's going for that. But then that end really, really hits me because it ties everything together and it really speaks on the compli- the complications of a lifelong friendship. It, and it's, it's a breakup story in a weird way. Yeah. You're breaking up with a, a childlong friendship. That is so much more complicated. And I think that's what makes this movie so interesting to watch is that it's, it's so complicated because Cassavetes is operating on life or death stakes and those peaks and valleys that he drives force Falk to go along for that ride. And in that is where is where we find, if you kind of equate to jazz, it's within those complications and those peaks and valleys that we find what this movie's really about. And it's about this friendship. And I think the cemetery scene is probably my favorite scene that speaks to that because it's the one time where I think they find the most common ground they can find, even though they're disagreeing the entire time. Yeah. But Cassavetes is trying to get at something. He's trying to talk a little about existential thoughts, about what happens when we die. He's there to see his mom. And, you know, he doesn't really know what to say to her at his grave and can't stop laughing. And Peter Falk is didn't even want to go. And he's trying to pray. <laughs> they say, what's the line? You know, when you think about like when we were kids, you know, only you and I remember that. That's how we know that these things happened. Mm -hmm. I think that's a very interesting idea because it's like what we think about memory, what we think about this person, clearly they have different ideas about uh, values in terms of how they feel about that. I just think that's a very interesting idea to throw out. And also kind of, again, speaking to the violent comedy, I really love the bus scene. And this is a perfect example of of conflict within a scene for no reason, is that they stop the bus because Casbase has decided they're getting out, but the bus driver won't let them go out the front door. Not a big deal. Just go out the back. But Cassavetes is like, no, 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 you're opening the door. And they get into this 
fight with the bus driver that ends up in a headlock. And my favorite is Peter Falk. He just goes, Nick, 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 stop. He's enormous. <laughs> Mikey and Nikki, I'm so glad we did this. I'm so glad we gave a little time to it. I really encourage people to go check it out. It is available on the Criterion Collection on the app right now, the stream. The Blu-ray is also available. If you're a fan of any type of Cassavetes movie that he directed, you're going to like this. I feel fairly confident saying that, but let's end it with what are you watching here? You're up first this week. What are you giving people to watch? I'm giving people some Tarkovsky here. Big hitter. Yeah, big hitter. Stalker, which is probably his most well-known movie. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's also probably a good way if you've never seen a Tarkovsky movie, they're not easy. They definitely, what's the best way to put it? Well, they test your patience for sure. Yeah. I mean, you have to be able to se- you have to know what you're getting yourself into and you have to know that you're sitting down for something that a lot of thought and intention has gone into it, gone into making it a slow meditative piece. That's perfect. And if you go into Stalker, with that mentality and you give it the time and space that it's asking for, you're going to come out of that movie uh, uh, pretty shaken in a, in a great creative way. Yeah, and a really good movie for uh, all filmmakers, but especially emerging filmmakers to watch because that is probably the biggest small movie I've ever seen. There are like four characters in it, maybe five total, two of which barely speak, but it's really three people and they're sent on this really really big kind of mission but they're walking through fields woods abandoned factories warehouses so the scale of the movie is small but the scope of it is massive great great lesson to learn i'm actually gonna go completely random here because get this guess what i just watched for the very first time the exorcist i saw that it was on hbo max and i scrolled past it because i've seen the exorcist i don't know 50 times but then i realized I've only ever seen the director's cut of The Exorcist, quote, the version you've never seen. I'd probably seen clips of the original Exorcist on TV as a kid or something, but the first time I saw this movie in full was when Freakin re-released it in theaters in 2000. He released that director's cut, the version you've never seen. When that version came out on DVD, that's what I bought, and that's what I still own. So I had never seen the original. I liked it. It's hard because I already love The Exorcist, and... To see a version where some of the stuff you love actually isn't there, it's just, it's a new experience. And I like aspects of both. I feel like the original is missing some of the additional context of the director's cut, but I also feel like there's a few things in the director's cut that could be taken out to kind of tighten things up a bit. But either way, you don't need me to tell you The Exorcist is a great movie, but I don't know, maybe there's someone else out there who has never seen, I I could not believe that it, it had just never dawned on me that I never saw the original cut. I highly recommend going to check that out if you haven't seen it or have a little fun and compare the two. It's, you know, there's really good stuff in the director's cut. So that's it from us, folks. Go check out Mikey and Nikki however you can. Maybe check out some Russian cinema. Maybe go check out a version of a great classic that you haven't seen. Thanks as always for listening and happy watching. Hey everyone, thanks again for listening. You can watch my films and read my movie blog at alexwithrow.com. NicholasTostal.com is where you can find all of Nick's film work. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at what 
areyouwatchingpodcast at gmail.com. And of course, you can find us on Twitter at W-A-Y-W underscore podcast. Next time, we're going to list our top 10 films of 2020. It's been a really weird damn year, and we're likely going to have some spirited choices on our lists. Stay tuned. My favorite is Peter Falk. He just goes, Nick, 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 stop. He's enormous. (laughs) You froze on me. I was waiting for it to come out. You there? You froze. You should see this picture that you have. One sec. I'll call you back. (sighs) Yes, wait. Reconnecting. Is it me? Texas. That's no good. What happened there, big hoss? You just froze on me for some reason. Pretty much once you froze, I was done with my point, and then I just started talking about you frozen. Oh, okay. Same here. (laughs) It's a good good time to pause, because I have to think about the movie of what are you watching. You dipshit. You're supposed to do this ahead of time. I'm just kidding. Yeah, I know, but it's been, it's been, uh, this is the one that's different. <laughs> what did I just watch? Stalker? Or is that another one? Yeah, fuck it. I'll make it Stalker. Yeah, make it Stalker. <laughs> All right.